officers, wow, what a great group of guys you have that lead and serve. Uh, your young pastors loved hearing the charge uh, that Dave made a few moments ago to the congregation and Rick's prayers and, and uh, Jeff and David's prayers. I was particularly struck by Frank's charge. I, I think this is probably the first time I've ever heard a lawyer charge someone and not get any money for it. <laughs> It was impressive. I got him ranked. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. It's a little disturbing, actually. <laughs> so uh, I want to read from uh, Hosea 14 for you. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Hosea 14, then just share a few things from God's word to you. Uh, this is God's word. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take an, uh, away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria will not save us, we will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands in you, in you uh, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. This is God speaking. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful morning and this lovely congregation, uh, this community that has celebrated together with these two young men who uh, have entered into leadership. Thank you for the leadership that David brings to this church, for faithful elders and deacons, uh, and for, uh, for your grace that is obviously showered upon this community. So be with us, and in spite of the insecurities and the failures and sins of the one who delivers the message, we pray that you would speak the gospel into our hearts, Lord Jesus. We believe you're here, and we long to hear your voice, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I shared with our guys on the retreat uh, 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 an incident from my life, and I asked them to act like it's the first time they've ever heard it in church today. Um, when I was a boy, uh, we lived in Miami. I was born and raised in Miami, and uh, uh, my grandfather, who lived in Atlanta and who kind of lived between Atlanta Philadelphia and sometimes Miami would travel down in this big Cadillac and he carried all his stuff in a big chest and he'd come to our house and he'd get my brothers in my room which we hated um, and uh, he would put this big chest in the middle of the room and uh, you have to understand I was raised in a Christian family it was a very uh, strong Christian family uh, we were uh, we were, um, uh, as I share with the guys, I can remember the times we didn't go to church. What I can't remember is all the times we did because we went so much. It was all the time. Uh, my parents were very devout, and my mom especially. 
So this was my dad's mom. And he'd take this chest and he'd bring it. It had all his clothes and his cigars and all his stuff. And uh, no one ever got into it. But one day my brother and I were home alone for some reason and my grandfather wasn't there. And we opened the chest and we went into it. And uh, I'm embarrassed to say that we found magazines that we probably shouldn't have found. And we stole them. We took the magazines because we knew deep down that our grandfather would never go to our mom about it because then he'd be busted. And so we stole them and we put them in a sack and we hid them up in the rafters of our garage. And um, they were there for years. And the honest truth is we hardly ever went up and saw them, but we did. And years and years passed and decades passed and we just forgot about it until one summer, I was a pastor in Tallahassee, Florida, and Catherine and I, my wife Catherine's here. We were, we were there with our three little children, and we, did, we, we were, you know, we didn't, we were, were poor, and our vacations would either be in Nashville, where her parents lived, or in Miami, where my parents lived. So we traveled down to Miami, and we got there, and we're taking all our stuff in, like we always do, through the garage that my dad had opened, waiting for us, and we're headed into the house, and my dad said yeah, we've got a leak in the roof over there in the rafters above the garage, and we're going to get that all taken care of next week. And I freaked. (laughs) I'm sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, I'm a pastor, and he's going to find this secret that I've had for my whole life. And what's he going to do? And so I I just calmly said, you know what, I'll be right in. Uh, And and my plan was to quickly climb up the rafters like I had when I was like 13, get that bag out, throw it in the garage, cover it with some stuff that was already in there so that they never knew it was in there. And so, but the the way it came out was, oh, okay, I'll be right back. I got to check something in the car. And my dad turns around and he goes, I know about the magazines. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) hold on to that story for a moment because it figures in. This morning we consider an invitation, one that is given to the people of Israel, the people of God, people who had every reason to be obliterated by God. God is holy, we're sinful, and uh, the people of Israel and the northern kingdom whom uh, Hosea directed most of his prophecy to uh, had had been rebellious for many years, and uh, they had every reason to be terrified that God was going to wipe them off the face of the map, but instead the entire prophecy teaches that he was pursuing them in love. One of the things I'm going to say at the end of the message and that I said throughout the weekend is this. God didn't save you to be perfect. He saved you to be his. And that distinction drives everything when it comes to living out the Christian life. Because either we're driven by the fear of being discovered as being as imperfect as we are, and we know it, whether it's in our thoughts or our imaginations or our motives or our desires or or even the good things that we do, the praise that we lay on somebody even though deep down we're jealous of them, or we're driven by something deeper and more meaningful than that that tells us and informs our spirits that God doesn't expect us to perform for him Because if we had to perform for his love, then it really wouldn't be love, would it? And for this, I so appreciated the things that I heard, whether it was in Rick's prayer or in Dave's and Frank's charges, that those who lead are as imperfect as the next person. There's this 
really cool uh, image in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is one of seven books that's in his Chronicles of Narnia, which is a treatment of the Christian faith that he wrote for his nephews and nieces, I believe, and, and that ever since adults of every age have just grasped to this allegorical picture of the Christian life in which children are, are us, and this lion is the Christ figure, and his name is Aslan, and in this particular story, which is the second book, is uh, the story that we know from the scriptures of, the, of Christ being uh, arrested and tried unjustly and executed, uh, not on a cross, but on a slab, and then coming back to life. And after he comes back to life, he's with these children, and they come to this place that is a court, courtyard of statues, and it's a very odd place in the woods that they don't understand until the lion breathes on these statues. And slowly but surely, the animals and entities that once were alive come back to life. And they, and they are given breath. And they are able to live as they were created to live. Frederick Buechner says, the kingdom of God is where we belong. It is home. Whether we realize it or not, I think we are, all of us, homesick for it. I hear that quote and I think of Jesus in John 14 when he said to his disciples, uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And we always read that as a great, beautiful promise to the disciples, and I think it is. It's a promise to us. But I just get the sense that that was also a son who was proud of his father and who was homesick. And he was saying, guys, I can't wait for you to see, you know, my room. For the past two days, we've been looking at um, the uh, prophecy of Hosea. Hosea was written in the 8th century B.C. I, by the way, I penned this inside of my notes while we were singing because I saw your sermon notes ask questions of when things were written and who it was written to, and I thought, yikes, I better get that in there so it fits into the sermon notes. It was written in the 8th century B.C. Hosea, amazingly, was a prophet for like 60 to 65 years. Could you imagine Dave in like 50 more years? And, uh, uh, no. And... Um, <laughs> And he, he, he largely preached to the northern of the divided kingdom of Israel. So you had, these, you had Israel, which uh, was the, the, top the top part, really wasn't half. And then below you had Judah. And his ministry was mostly to the northern kingdom. Although oddly, and unlike some of the other prophecies, he really speaks to both. And ultimately, they speak to all of us. And in his prophecy, in the most painful of ways... God illustrates Israel's unfaithfulness to him by having the prophet marry a prostitute who is constantly running out on him and committing adultery. And, uh, and, and who the prophet was, was demand, commanded to consistently take back and be reunited to and reconciled to in his marriage. And all of this was to demonstrate God's passion for his people, God's unfailing desire for his people, regardless of the depth of their rebellion and sin. It's very comforting. So our focus this weekend was renewal. Uh, that is the continuing entry of God into our lives 
in which he refreshes us to himself. We need this. I need this. If you've been a believer for a long time, then you know the seasons of dryness. You know the times that you just do things sort of automatically, whether it's going to church or small group or a mission trip or uh, volunteering in the nursery or in Bible school or teaching or whatever it is. When, and, and sometimes we see this when somebody comes to know Jesus and, and they're so thrilled and we see the joy and excitement in their hearts and we think, you know, I remember that and we long for it. And that's what God does when he renews us. And he does this by inviting us to return to him. And whenever you read return in the, the Old Testament, more than likely it's a call to repent. To come to terms with the fact that we have become far from God in our rebellion, in our sin, in our indifference, in ourself, and are in need of being restored to the relationship of love, meaning, and communion with God and with others just exactly as we were intended and created to enjoy. But unfortunately, the whole idea of repentance has sort of become warped into this dreadful experience in the Christian life. But you never see that in the Bible. You never see this dreadful repent experience that is often portrayed in the church. And in churches, and you read of these nightmares and these horror stories of people who were shamed to repentance in church and sometimes publicly, but that's not what you really find in the scriptures. In the scriptures, we find that repentance is reason for celebration and joy, and that's what we find in the Gospels. Contrary to what we see out there, oftentimes, or even think in our minds, the Gospel teaches that God is a father and not a tyrant. And his desire and his great longing for his people is that they would love him and flourish and, and flourish in his delight as they were created to in the garden before sin came and wrecked everything and brought the curse. And this joy is the end of our story. This joy is the end of your story. This delight and flourishing is what we were created for. We tend to look at our lives and our, and our stories and our sins and our pasts and our decisions and our, you know, maybe a season when we were in college or things that we have done and, and they fill us with shame and we see ourselves as, as, as damaged goods. But that's not what the gospel teaches. We see ourselves as, as lost and beyond hope, but that's not what the, the word of God teaches. We see ourselves as... As, as unforgivable or as second-class citizens, but we just don't see this in the gospel. It's not the teaching of the Word of God. You can't find it. You, could, you would have to warp and twist the Word of God to teach such a message. I read last year this fascinating, actually I saw a video of this artist named Ted Meyer out in L.A. And Meyer, because of his own physical maladies, uh, developed this, this uh, artistic style of getting people whose body has, has been marred by some kind of wreckage. And, and in this video, it was with a, a, a vet, uh, an, an army vet who had been in Afghanistan and who was, um, who was the victim of a landmine that went off, an IUD, I guess it's called. And he... he um, he uh, uh, um, uh, was, uh, it exploded, 
and his his knee was uh, was wrecked and had this terrible this terrible scarring. And this artist in this video takes uh, a, a a piece of of, um, of paper. And well, what, first he takes this roller and he rolls it in this red paint and he rolls it on the scar on his knee. And, um, and, uh, and then he takes this special paper and he puts it on it and he forms it to the side of his knee and he takes it to a special canvas and he places it on the canvas and he pulls it away and he creates this exquisite scene out of the out of the, uh, the 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 central focus, which is the scar of this guy's life, and he does it with men and women, and it gives them the sense that something exquisite come out of their scars. So this invitation to return is really always for the sake of good things and not bad in the gospel, and nowhere is this more clearly seen than in Mark one. If you read the first few verses of Mark 1, what you read is of John the Baptist who comes and Mark says, uh, who preaches uh, the, the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And Mark says, and all Jerusalem and the entire Judean countryside come to hear him. All the people from in the city, all the people don't, that don't live in the wilderness, all the people that don't live where this crazy hayseed who is proclaiming the gospel is proclaiming the gospel, and they all come amazingly, in spite of what we sometimes feel with our shame and our fear and our hiddenness, they come because they heard that this, this baptism of repentance brings the forgiveness of sin. And with that, we look at two points in the passage, and then we'll bring it all home. And the first one is that out of verses 1 through 3, that this invitation is an invitation to be restored. The prophet refers to our state of sin or iniquity as stumbling. And the word stumbling here means to be, to be brought down, to be, to be, to be overcome. And, and this is what sin does. It brings us down. It uh, brings us down and it plunges us into this subhuman existence of deception and shame and self-loathing and fear. At the very same time that we're doing what we want to do, we're miserable. At the very same time that we're pursuing the things that we wanted to pursue that we know that we shouldn't, we feel less than human. So the prophet says that that, that we are to take words with us as we go to the Lord, that is, to enumerate what we've been all about, what we've done, and therefore who we've become in this kind of dehumanizing process of sin. And in doing so, in turning to the Father, we move from stumbling and hiding to relationship, where we feel human again. We actually come to this Father that we've dreaded, thinking as many might make us feel that He's going to hammer us when He finds out where we've been hiding the magazines all these years. And what we find is that we're human again, and we move from that subhuman existence where we have to lop part of ourselves off and able to be able to live with ourselves, to face ourselves, to see ourselves in the mirror because we know that what we're doing isn't who we are. We know that what we've been involved in is not what God called us to and we are moved from this 
in, to a Father who desires us and meets us in our brokenness, in our shame, in our wounds, with forgiving grace and affection. Amazing. And Hosea refers to it, as, this is how he puts it, in you the orphan finds mercy. In other words, in our return to the Lord, we recapture our true identity as God's beloved children, children of a father who adores us and has adopted us from an anonymous and love-starved existence into his glorious family, most richly understood in this community, the church. You see, when God invites us to return, it is an invitation to repent. We do have to come to terms with the fact that there are sins for us to enumerate before the Lord, but it's really an invitation to be restored to the humanity, the humanness that God created us to have in the beginning. And secondly, it is an invitation, verses 4 through 7, to rehearse what we will one day be. Because the promises that we find in verses 4 through 7 offer a glimpse of what will one day be when Jesus makes everything new and heaven and earth are become one. In other words, every time we believe and act on the invitation of a Father who desires for us to bring our broken, rebellious, flawed, imperfect, and sinful selves to him, we rehearse the celebration of heaven. I mean, isn't that the point of the story we most love in the New Testament? In Luke 15, when Jesus tells the story of this boy who is so full of himself and so full of his own desires and so convinced that he knows what's best for him that he goes to his dad, who's obviously a wealthy landowner, and he demands that he wants his inheritance before his father has died and passed it on through his older brother. And then, essence the boy is going to his dad and saying I just as soon wish you were dead so I could get what's rightfully mine one day when you do die and he goes off into a faraway country with all kinds of money and opportunities and power because of the money the resources that are at his disposal and he spends freely and enjoys freely and he makes all kinds of friends that aren't really friends because as soon as he runs out of money he runs out of friends, he runs out of resources, he runs out of opportunities, and he is miserable and he finds himself not in the palace, not on the farm, not with his dad, not with these supposed friends, not at the bar, not wherever it might be, not in the sack, but in a pigsty, in the mud, fighting with hogs, trying to eat something because he can't afford to take care of himself. And in his darkest moment where Jesus says, when he came to the end of himself he remembered his dad it's almost like his dad was able to to somehow emanate his his mercy and peace to him through the the acreage and the miles and one day he comes to his senses and he thinks about his dad and he thinks you know my dad isn't like these people. My dad loves me. My dad treats his servants better than he treats me. 
I need to be with my dad. And he gets up and he stinks, and Henri Nouwen has this beautiful image of Rembrandt on the cover of his book, The Prodigal, and he limps, he runs, whatever he does, back to his home, only to find that his dad is not at work, but his dad, heartbroken, yet hopeful, is at the edge of his property, waiting yet another day for his son to return. And when he sees his dad and approaches him, his dad runs out to greet him and embraces him. He doesn't smell him. He doesn't notice that he's a mess. He just embraces him and he covers him in what has covered him and he has him taken care of. And all this guy wanted to do was go and just be one of his servants. And his dad's like, no, you're not a servant. You're not discarded refuse. You're not damaged goods. You're my boy. I love you. And you know the rest of the story. So the prophet says he will heal because in God's new world is the healing of nations. The prophet says he will love freely because when everything is made new, all the love and passion of the cross will be celebrated at the feast together as one. He will cause us to blossom because in heaven everything will be as it was created to be. And sin and the curse can no longer prevent us from enjoying what God has called us to be. We will flourish because we will live in the beauty, loveliness, and peace that we were always intended to before sin and the curse wrecked our humanity and the world. That's why I say, this is what I want you to take with you today. When you go out there, God didn't save you to be perfect. He could have made you robots. He could have made you automatons. He could have made you do anything he wanted to. God didn't save you to be perfect. He saved you to be his. It is his passion. It is his driving desire. It is what sent his son to the cross. He doesn't call us to return and repent in order to fix our record. You don't have to fix your record. You can't fix your record. And if you could, you would make yourself worse or to prove his deity but to heal us and to put on display his kingdom before an otherwise desperate lost and starving world and what this means is that every time we resist the inclination to prove his deity or to prove or our, our own perfections, every time we resist the inclination to, to protect self, to hide, to rationalize or justify sin or our spiritual hardness, every time we resist the inclination to prove why we might be spiritually superior or better or more astute or more learned or mature than the other persons, we practice the kingdom of God. We demonstrate not that we've got it all together, but that we belong to the one who has redeemed us. We practice the kingdom of God. The kingdom comes. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Every time you confess wrongdoing, you put the humility of Christ on display. Every time you forgive when your instinct is bitterness, you give credence to the gospel. Every time you admit weakness, you make the Father's grace irresistibly sweet in a graceless world. Every time you care rather than self-protect and indifference, you reenact the mercy of God. You see, in our return, it isn't all about me. 
In our return, that is, in the daily commitment to repent and believe the gospel afresh, we rehearse heaven here. Now, in this life, in this broken and fallen world with all its mess and all our mess, when we freely, freshly flee to Jesus in faith, He takes our weakness and our fears and He does with them what He has done with us. He redeems them. And in doing so, He changes the physics of our perspective and we see the world in a whole new way and it transforms every action and encounter we experience into redemptive glimpses of what will one day be at the feast in a hundred years none of us will be here but we'll be at the feast if we belong to Jesus an embarrassing story from my life as though you've heard all of them uh, it would take uh, several years but um, when, we, when we were in Tallahassee, we got called to my home church in Miami where we pastored for 10 years before we moved um, up to uh, Maryland. And right after we got there, we went to a beach that I grew up going to. I was born and raised there. It's called Crandon Park Beach, and it was, uh, it was, um, it's a great beach, but it was, uh, it, was it was Labor Day weekend. It was packed with people. And we went and sat with our young children, our son and our two daughters, and uh, we just wanted to enjoy the beach, enjoy the sun, enjoy the beach, and, um, and we were there. But not long after we were there, there was a guy that was with his girlfriend next to us, and they were utterly lewd and, uh, and embarrassing. And so I said to Catherine, let's, let's get up, let's go some, let's leave. And she was all too ready, and uh, the children didn't know what was going on, and we started to go. And unfortunately, in my self-righteousness and pride and arrogance and forgetting that I was a sinner, and then not too many years ago, my dad discovered magazines I had up in the garage uh, to tie the stories together. I looked at the guy and his girlfriend and said, couldn't you have waited to get home to do that? And, uh, you know, the guy wasn't too happy about it. And he got up and, you know, I was reminded that when people stand up, they're a lot taller than when they're lying down. And not only was he tall, but he was big. And not only was he big, but he was part of a gang that was all there right with him. And they got up with him and he starts cussing me out and telling me what he's going to do with me. And his girlfriend's helping him to do that. And I told Catherine, just go to the lifeguard. And I just stood there and he starts telling me it's none of my business. And I said, listen, I'm just a dad and I'm protecting my family. Well, you know what? I kind of got myself into that. And he keeps going, and all of a sudden, this, this young man that's with him comes around. He's a, a big meat. He looks like a guy that was in construction, and he comes between his friend and me, and he calms his friend down, and he comes to me, and he says, just go. And I walked away, and the lifeguard comes up to me, and he says, are you guys okay? And I said, no, we're not okay. And he says, you want me to do anything about it? I said, absolutely not. I mean, you should, whatever you should have done, you should have done a lot like two months ago. You don't. Don't do anything. Don't say anything. I want to get my family to my car. I thought I was going to get killed. And um, so we walk. And we start walking to the car. And we're getting to the parking lot. And, and um, all of a sudden, I see the guy that's, that, that stepped in between the, the guy that was going to come after me. And, uh, and me, 
And he comes up to me and he goes, why did you tell the lifeguard what happened? And I, or why did you tell the lifeguard about us? And I said, I didn't tell them. And he goes, well, he came to us and he told us whatever. And I said, listen, he came to me. He said, and this guy had a bottle in his hand. I thought, oh, this is great. Welcome to Miami. And he, and he, and he says, well, the guy came to us and he told us we were in trouble. And uh, I protected you from this guy. And I said, listen, you did. And I really appreciate it. And I'm sorry that he came after you. I said, I'm a dad and I was just protecting my children. And I'm not making this up. He began to sob. And he said, I'm a father too, and I've screwed up my life. And I said, listen, I'm a Christian pastor. Can I pray for you? And he's crying, and he says yes, and he holds on to me. And I pray for this meat of a warrior in the middle of Crandon Park Beach, between the parking lot and the beach, as people are walking by, and when I'm done, he just holds on. And I realized that for a few moments on that beach, because I was grossed out, I had lost sight of the kingdom of God. And God gave me another shot with this kid. But what about that shadow in the passage? And I'll close after this. What about that shadow that the prophet speaks of in verse 7? We read of it, we read of it in, in uh, Psalm 91.1, right? We read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And we think of the protective wing of God, the, the one who keeps us in his care. But, you know, we got a clue to it in our responsive reading this morning when we read out of, read out of Deuteronomy. And we responded and we said... If at that time you return to the Lord your God and you and your children begin wholeheartedly to obey all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. Wow, what a great promise. I've already broken it since saying it. Haven't you? Dear friends, is it not Jesus himself is it not under the shadow of his great demonstration of love for us on the cross that we hide and that he with outstretched arms and bleeding side offers himself as payment for the wrath and rage and the very sins in us that have grieved the Father on our behalf? Is it not at the cross that our sins are covered not with paint and canvas, but with the very blood of Jesus. And with his blood, has he not already demonstrated that he absolutely adores you? With all that he is, with his life, with his breath, with his being, in order for you to become all that you were meant to be. Augustine says, God is all this to you. If you hunger, he is bread to you. If you thirst, he is water to you. If you are in darkness, he is light to you. What is holding you back? To say, you don't know what I've done, is not a statement of humility. It is a statement of arrogance and pride. You are laughing in the face of the one who says, I already know. What more does my son have to die for? What are you waiting for? 
Why endure and absorb the brutality of sin and the misery of a tormented conscience when Jesus invites you to come to him, scars and all, to find rest and peace, healing and forgiveness, meaning, and himself now until he makes everything new and heaven and earth become one. You see, in the gospel, we're not damaged goods. We are the exquisite work of a father who has painted us with the redemptive sacrifice of his son, Jesus. We are his. And that's good news. This is the gospel. Amen. Father, uh, speak the gospel into our hearts. We know that a sermon can't do that. You have to do it. You have to find us where we are, where we're hiding, where we're weeping, where we're grieving, where we're failing, where we're insecure and insensitive. You have to find us, and we pray that you will, because you have in Jesus. Amen. covering that will bring rescue is the covering of Christ. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, even Christ Jesus, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power. May you go in his peace because he has loved you in eternity. He's come for you in time. He's making everything new. He's coming back. He's yours. You're his. Amen. God bless Amen. you.